This is the Diet of Brussels and it's a new year. It's another new year. Um, it's kind of typical of Brexity things that stuff happens around Christmas, it seems, uh, whether that's treaties or uh, the end of retained EU law, which has happened this year. We can maybe mention that um, as we go along. But uh, as ever, I'm joined by David. Hello, David. Hello, so I'm anxious to let you know these new years come around every year, so... No, it's 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 a, a tragedy, and they come around faster and faster. Um, what we want to do in this uh, New Year's podcast is do a little bit of uh, looking back, and then a little bit of looking forward. Um, partly because this is actually uh, a bit of a pivotal moment. We we've kind of coming out the back end, if you like, of our 2023s resolution of the kind of the, the basic parameters so it would seem uh with the windsor framework and kind of some of the the follow-through of that kind of process but also uh 2024 has got a lot of important things happening in the world but also particularly relevant to uk eu relations so uh, we're going to do that retrospective bit and actually it's not just retrospective it's also uh uh is an apology i don't know it's a uh, an updating on our previous assumptions uh when uh we said in one of our previous uh recordings that uh, we couldn't see how the car battery uh issue was going to be resolved and then i think about three days later it probably got resolved um so uh particularly for david uh we are going to explore that and then uh we'll turn our attention to the coming 12 months um David, car batteries. Um, we have an agreement. Everyone's super happy, possibly. Um, what's uh, what actually did come about, and uh, where does it leave us? Well, even I am super happy, and it's always good to talk about my favourite topic. So, uh, indeed, when we talked about it in our podcast on June uh, 2023, 26th of June. Um, in terms of the podcast, we talked a little bit about the problems that were arising in relation to this idea that the rules of origin were no longer going to be applied for electric car batteries. So this was going to be an issue that was coming up on the 31st of December of last year. And the idea that tariffs were going to be placed on these components, which of course were going to increase the costs for car manufacturers who are increasingly under pressure from Chinese car manufacturers. Uh, as car, Chinese car manufacturers begin to enter the EU market. But nonetheless, uh, there was an agreement reached. The Commission had floated three ideas. The first was to delay the uh, tariffs for three years, which ended up being the outcome. Uh, the other option was to basically do nothing, so allow the tariffs to be placed on these car batteries from the 31st of December 2023, or alternatively allow for this 12-month caution. Um, so basically give car manufacturers an extension of 12 months whereby they would be able to meet the rule of origins uh, as listed out in TCA in terms of the criteria for that. And in the end of the day, we reached a uh, three-year extension. How we did that? Well, we will investigate that further, of course, through our project as we engage with key informants from the member states. But our initial understanding is that Germany had been the leader here, was able to put together a coalition of 21 member states 
in the UK Working Party, which is a working party within the Council. And this is where the member states meet twice weekly to discuss issues in relation to the implementation of the withdrawal agreement and the trade and cooperation agreement. So Germany had put together a coalition of 21 member states. Um, one can assume that in that coalition you have Czechia, of course, manufacturer Skoda, Italy, of course, car manufacturers being Fiat, Ferrari, etc., and Spain, coalition uh, or state that, of course, produces safe cars. Interestingly, of course, France is a big producer of cars as well. We think of Peugeot, we think of Renault, but the French car manufacturers don't necessarily sell a lot of cars into the UK market. So there may be an underlying reason as to why France uh, was opposed to making any changes uh, to this. But in the end, they did agree. And I think probably helped by the fact that the European Commission uh, proposed this uh, 3 billion euros or 2.5 billion pounds fund for the battery industry to help accelerate production within the European Union, which no doubt will benefit uh, French uh, car battery manufacturers. So this idea of increasing homegrown electrical electric vehicles and also the car battery component to that as well within the European Union, no doubt will be quite helpful to smooth any problems uh, with the French. So an interesting, I suppose, pull the rabbit out of the hat situation. We were very, at least my understanding was from the member states, that some of them were open uh, to that. But the fact that France caved in is interesting and conceded on this point, even though France had been very much opposed to making any changes to the TCA. So we'll await further investigation to understand the dynamics in relation to how this occurred. But our understanding is that Germany was able to get this through uh, with a 21 member state coalition within the working party uh, for the UK. Uh, though it should also be said as a proviso that it was clearly stated, and again, this is something perhaps that convinced the French, uh, this does not mean that there's going to be an underlying change in terms of how the TCA is perceived or that there will be changes to the TCA into the future. And I think that will touch on one of our topics later in this podcast as well, in terms of Labour's intent to uh, to make changes to TCA to perhaps bring it closer or to have a UK-EU relationship that is much more closer than it actually is. Yeah, I think, you know, that this is the, the a bit of the conundrum that, you know, when we talked about it in our previous uh, podcast, you know, the, there didn't seem to be any flexibility on the part of the French, partly because of their economic interests, but also just because of setting precedents. And so uh, the fact that this has been overcome, I think, it, is interesting. Um, but yeah, again, you know, that this was the paradox. It seemed to be in both the UK and the EU's interests overall to find a, a resolution to this process. And yet we left it very late uh, indeed. You know, we were kind of at the back end of November with uh, barely a month to actually uh, make this happen. So uh, even that took um, uh, some time to get through the formal process of agreement. I think it was only shortly just before Christmas. So uh yes uh every christmas brings little presents uh or in this case very large um divergences to allow for uh, a bit more time to resolve it um i think we would do that and i think we do need to come back to this uh down the road when we, we kind of get a bit more sight on quite what changed but we had another agreement 
David, um, which came uh, about a week after this car battery deal, which got much less attention, uh, seemed to be very harmonious uh, in an area which is uh, historically one of the more uh, aggravating uh, and uh, antagonistic parts of the relationship, namely fisheries. Um, this was uh, the annual fisheries deal that uh, the UK has to conclude with the EU, um, which came about basically with no obvious um, tensions on either side. Um, The absence of any tensions makes it rather hard to say very much more about it, but I don't know if there's anything you you want to say at, at this stage about what did or more importantly didn't happen. I think that the member states, I mean, I firstly agree with you, it was a bit surprising that it was not so contentious, but I think the member states and the UK have allowed this consultations. They were pretty happy with the result, with the result in terms of preserving UK fishing rights in its own waters, naturally, and also the balance in terms of allowing EU fisheries or EU uh, fishery fleets to access UK waters. Uh, the agreement there for those uh, states, there's only about eight member states, by the way, that are generally involved in this. Um, so though there are quite big players, France being again quite a big player here in terms of that, um, the fact that they seem to be happy with that as well uh, gives an indication that perhaps we have moved on to perhaps if we were to take the car batteries issue that we just spoke about a little bit uh, a few minutes ago, kind of gives us a sense that maybe the relationship is moving on to a much more even keel or perhaps a little bit more harmonious relationship than has been the relationship that had proceeded, which was a bit more fractious. I mean, as we recall, during the trade and cooperation agreement, there was fisheries as one of those key issues. It was very fractious. Um, France, indeed Spain, too, considered this to be a very important issue. But now we've ended up uh, in the situation whereby both the UK and the EU have basically agreed on the fishing rights for 2024. Let's see what happens maybe as we come closer to the renewal of the TCA, but this is, I'm assuming, just a, a continuous or continuing the agreement that had been reached in the TCA. But of course, as we know, the TCA is up for renewal and this may bring this issue back up to the top and it may be, uh, be a bit more contentious then. But as it stands, surprising, wasn't even carried by the press. Uh, indeed, even the council itself on its own press release didn't spend too much time talking about it. So an indication of it being a non-contentious issue, but it possibly could be as we move towards that renewal of the TCA. Yeah, OK, I'm going to be more negative. <laughs> the, one of the things that's happening at this point is that we're in the middle of a transition phase for fisheries. So uh, we had uh systems of quotas agreed amongst the 28 member states during membership and as part of the TCA we agreed a phased five-year transition to uh, a redistribution of those quotas so basically giving UK boats more of the share of fishing uh, of various species uh, in coastal uh, and shared waters uh, and reducing the EU's uh, access over time. Now that was kind of set out in quite substantial detail in the TCA Um, and so you know we did have a a, a kind of a framework agreement at that point. Come 2026, 2025, 2026, uh, 
then we end up in less certain areas. We've got uh, the ability to start having uh, reviews of uh, those quotas. There's no clarity about whether there's further reduction of EU access uh, or whether it stays basically as it is. Um, and as well as that general review of the TCA in 2026, we've also got a review of fisheries specifically in 2030 um, that is uh, to look at kind of more structural kind of issues and I think will be more substantive. So as much as we have avoided problems, it's not just been this year, fair to say, I think it has been every year since uh, the TCA kicked in, that actually there's been minimal disruption and nothing like the scenes that we had around Jersey with the uh, the inshore fishing uh, fleets kind of coming out and blocking ports and all the rest. Um, but I don't necessarily know that we, we this might just be a hiatus in that antagonism rather than a, a structural resolution. But let's let's take our Christmas cheer where we can find it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Indeed, just just if I may, and of course the a famous image of uh, UK fishing boats going down the Thames as well. Just think about those images yeah. of fish and certain politicians throwing fish into the exactly. Into and, the, you know that again. That constituency, I think, is one that is going to merit more attention in coming years. You know that having been very much pro uh, withdrawal, uh, you know, doing a lot of visible displays like those uh, uh, flotillas uh, up the Thames. I think there has been a degree more ambivalence that uh, has come post withdrawal, not least in terms of market access for. Uh, fish caught by UK fleets. Um, you know, this is one of the, the basic inconsistencies is that uh, British fishermen catch fish that British people don't eat. Um, and so it needs to get access. You know, a lot of it was sold into EU and that became a lot more problematic because of uh, SPS uh, requirements and veterinary requirements and all the rest. So I think there's work there to be done and things that will come through. Um, I guess the last area that I'll, I will talk about uh, with this uh, retrospective section is the end of retained EU law. Um, so this has been a big issue. We've got a huge body of uh, legislation that was carried over post uh, exit from uh, EU case law, primary legislation, secondary legislation, statutory instruments, all kinds of things. And as you will know, big piece of work to try and uh, remove that from the statute books in a demonstration of taking back control, um, British laws for British people, all those kind of agendas. Now, uh, the retained EU law uh, bill that went through last year had a lot of uh, issues, a lot of problems, not least because it was going to sunset all of that retained EU law at the end of 2023 after much pointing out that nobody actually had a definitive list of what that law was, uh, let alone the unintended consequences of removing it, uh, the government made a decision in the middle of last year to switch to a prescribed list uh, in a schedule of the Retained EU Law Act, uh, which would be sunset, and that has now come into effect. So uh, we've had a, a, a big uh, advance in the amounts of uh, law that has been moved on. 
but that said, we still have uh, a very large number of pieces of legislation and case law that still applies. So uh, we're still somewhere in the region of about two thirds of the identified uh, pieces of retained EU law that still are in effect in some form or other and usually in the original form. Um, one point that's technical but which I need to remember as well is that it's no longer called retained EU law, it's now called assimilated law. So uh, we uh, will be trying to use that language um, but we'll come back to that because as much as uh, that agenda has advanced. Uh, it still is clearly a long term uh, process. And certainly for those of you who've been following the work I've been doing on social media and on uh, blogs, uh, you'll know that the data that is held is very inconsistent. And even to make the point, if you look at the Retained EU Law Act, there are several pieces listed in the schedule uh, for sunsetting. Uh, the other week that don't appear on the central government database uh, at all. So um, uh, you can see part of the problem that was being highlighted back in the summer. But again, I think the, the leitmotif of all of this is that post Windsor, we've really got a space here where there is some progress some general development of the relationship some dealing with technical issues, but also progressively kind of mapping out where we are heading to. Uh, and that's something that both of us are very much mindful of. Which brings us to the second part of uh, this episode, namely the future. Um, and I think we've got three things here we want to talk about. We're going to talk about the European Parliament elections. We're going to talk a bit about smart borders. And then obviously we're going to talk about the general election, particularly Labour's policy, since they still look set to form the next government. Um, European Parliament elections are coming in June. Uh, so that's across the 27 uh, member states. Uh, those elections will produce uh, a new arrangement uh, of uh, MEPs. In the European Parliament, who will then be responsible for selecting uh, or approving uh, a new president of the European Commission um, and confirming uh, a new commission uh, more generally during uh, the summer. Uh, so that kind of come September, October, depending on how that goes, we should have a new commission uh, in place. At the same time, the European Parliament, uh, the European Council rather, will also uh, have a discussion about uh, its president uh, and whether uh, that uh, switches as well. So potentially we've got a change of uh, lead figures uh, in the European institutions. Um, and we've got uh, some issues that might come out of that. Um, I think for me, the likely impact on relations is, is going to be relatively small. Um, even with a change in composition of the European Parliament, uh, their role is relatively minor in the process. Um, you might well have a new uh, commission uh, lead uh, on relations. So instead of Mara Shevkovich, uh, we might well end up with someone else. And uh, the European Council, again, uh, that composition doesn't change uh, so much. Um, David, any thoughts on am i fair in saying that the individuals don't matter uh, so much in this 
Well, certainly with regards to the president of the European Commission, I think you take a a very positive view that if you are president or that if you win the European Parliament elections, that you will end up being uh, president of the European Commission. As we've seen before, that the European Council has generally a tendency to override at least the Spritz candidate idea, which is basically that if the party group that had the most MEPs, the leader of that would end up being uh, president of the European Commission, as we saw in the case of the last European Parliament elections uh, with Manfield Weber. Who wanted to who ended up uh, winning the European Parliament uh, elections as head of the European People's Party? It, of course, was not uh, president of the European Commission at the end. It was Ursula von der Leyen. That was a decision by the European Council. So, European Council very much plays a key role here in deciding who will be the leader of the uh, Commission. So, indeed, perhaps uh, we should be consider a little bit more in terms of the role of the European Council there. But generally speaking, you are correct in terms of whether or not it will actually make an impact on UK-EU relations. You are correct insofar as that it will be quite diminished. And we don't even need to take a look at the lead uh, candidates or indeed the uh, actual commissioners themselves. If you take a look at, for example, the presidency priorities of the Belgian presidency, for example, uh, and the rotating presidency of the Council of the European Union. The UK, I think, is mentioned maybe once or twice in the document. Uh, if you actually look at the structure within the president's cabinet of the European Council and the secretary general of the European Commission, the roles of or for officials in terms of actual roles, in terms of, say, the implementation of the WA and the TCA are very small in terms of there are only a few officials within the secretary general that are actually dealing with this issue. Presidents in the European Council, president's advisor used to have an advisor uh, in relation to UK EU affairs. That position no longer exists. So we don't even have to look too far in terms of the lead roles of the commission, future commission president, future president of the European Council, or indeed commissioners themselves. Structurally, the institution, certainly the European Council and the commission themselves have very much reduced the number of people who are working on this issue, which, uh, and again, of course, the Belgian presidency itself, its priorities, all giving you an indication of the direction of the UK-EU relations in terms of how the how much time, how much institutional capacity is given by the institutions to this relationship, and also should be taken or taken into account as well. The UK Working Party uh in the council has about three officials as well so very small unit compared to say other working parties in terms of the number of administrators and uh, officials working on that so uh the relationship in terms of the institutional capacity and the priority for the council european council and for the commission uh both at the political level and at a technical level is indeed quite small and i assume that and i expect that in 2024 european parliament elections the results of that will not have a constant impact on the eu uk relationship having said that i think you know the concern that there is for this election, as there have been for the last few, is that the rise, there will be an in, a further increase in uh, non-centrist uh, party representation, let's put it that way. So particularly on the right, uh, the identity and democracy groups, so that's people like AfD in Germany, the RN in France, uh, Lega in Italy, uh, 
seems likely to uh, grow, as does the uh, Conservative group, the ERC. So that's people like Law and Justice in Poland, uh, Brothers of Italy. Um, so groups like that, as far as we can tell from the polling, which is not particularly uh, detailed at this point, both suggest that those groups will grow. And so we might well find that those groups uh, use that as a way of claiming more senior portfolios in the commission uh, down the line or of causing more trouble in the, the nomination process. So uh, as much as we not really seeing a huge shift um, and, you know, the technical side of the process is kind of somewhat insulated, certainly the politics around uh, the EU might become more difficult, even though, you know, we're very likely to see a maintenance of a kind of a grand coalition between uh, the EPP uh, and uh, the socialists in the European Parliament. You know, the EPP, well, we could do a whole different podcast about uh, whether that's drifting to the right or how much it's drifting to the right. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I think we have to recognise that the, the environment generally in which relations are occurring is uh, likely to get uh, more complicated in broadest sense of the the term um rather than simpler um and we're not even going to talk about u.s elections because uh i haven't the time or the inclination uh in early january um okay that's kind of a big kind of thing on the eu side there's another more technical uh, kind of development that's coming later this year uh which is the entry and exit system the ees David, do you want to tell us a bit about that and how that works? Yeah, certainly. And just before I do, I just say, I mean, you brought up the issue of the EPP, also the S&D, Liberals Renew, the Commission's majority. If there's going to be a consequence from these European Parliament elections, the Commission majority within the European Parliament will have to include more pro-centrist parties. So it's not just going to be the EPP or the S&D or Renew as it is now. It's likely going to have to include the Greens EFA as well. So that complicates for the Commission at least uh, pushing through legislation within the European Parliament as well, or getting the European Parliament to co-legislate on legislation. So just uh, if you are thinking about the consequences, that's probably one of the things that it makes it more difficult or more complicated for the Commission uh, related to that. But indeed, uh, turning to UK matters then in relation to the EES, so this entry exit system, which is now going to be earmarked for the 6th of October 2024 and will affect UK travellers, and I suppose, uh, this is the kind of the first effect, you could say maybe second effect even, that UK citizens will feel in terms of this post-Brexit relations. So obviously you have had when arriving at airports that are in the Schengen area and that the UK had been out of the Schengen area, but naturally you had these long queues or longer queues even more so now because you used to have the ability for UK citizens to go into the EU lanes at airports uh, to process their entry into the European Union. Now it's going to be a bit different as well. So this idea of the European or sorry, the entry exit system, the EES, uh, comes basically from uh, partly from the fallout of the 2016 migration crisis. So this idea of trying to strengthen the EU's border management 
or management of its borders, I should say, with this smart borders package and the EES is part of that. So as a UK tourist, if you're traveling into the Schengen area, so that of course excludes Cyprus and Ireland, but includes all the other member states and also Norway, Iceland, Switzerland and Liechtenstein. So basically what that means is that if you are seeking to travel into the Schengen area, you will now have to present not only, of course, your passport, but you will also have a photo taken at the uh, area where you are processing your passport, but also you'll need to register uh, your fingerprints as well. So this is going to add and this information will be kept on file and you'll only have to do it once, but this will increase delays for UK tourists seeking to visit the continent. So it is expected uh at least that initially when you were for example dover and you were seeking to travel across the channel a process of just checking your passport putting passports in the details into a system would take between say 45 to 90 seconds now it's expected to add perhaps 10 minutes to the travel time of a family of five and indeed Eurotunnel itself expects to see those types of added time to your tour or to your uh, journey by about five to seven minutes so it is going to increase the amount of time not exponentially but around maximum 10 minutes for uk tourists to go through border controls when entering the schengen area i think the main issue here is that it is i suppose a signifying and will be a visual signifier to UK tourists and UK citizens seeking to enter the Schengen area that this is very much that the UK has now in a very much a different relationship with the European Union. There have been a lot of conversations and talks about how these things about uh, the different areas that have changed since the UK has left the European Union. Say, for example, if you're a UK student that wished to go on uh, the Erasmus program, they've got the turning program, et cetera, et cetera. But this is going to affect all UK citizens that seek to travel into the European Union, unless of course they have uh, dual citizenship and perhaps have an EU passport. But uh, it is a visual reminder of the change in the relationship between the UK and the EU. But I suppose at this moment in time, it I mean, has been mooted, it was delayed, and I don't know how many people have really thought about this or aware of this. So this is perhaps something the at that point in time, I'm assuming a new UK government, Labour government, uh, depending on the general election when it is held, unfortunately it may be held in October, but there will need to be some, hopefully there's some sort of forward planning in terms of information for UK citizens as well, because I'm assuming that the majority of UK citizens who are seeking to travel into the Schengen area are not aware of this and are probably in for a rude surprise. Yeah, I think a couple of points. The first thing is this isn't uh, an anti-UK measure. This is for all non-EU citizens, wherever they're coming from. Um, so uh, it's part of the the shift in the way that the EU manages uh, its processes more generally. And again, partly it reflects that, that hardening uh, to the right that we, we just talked about with the European Parliament. Um, I think secondly, that delay you mentioned reflects more general issues around the system. This was slated to come in during the summer, but then got pushed back because of the Olympics in Paris uh, this year and just concerns that the system really would struggle to manage uh, that. So 6th of October, 
conveniently misses the summer uh, rush uh, of people and hopefully kind of knocks off the edges of uh, managing very large movements of uh, people uh, into and out of the EU. Um, but again, it's it's partly a reflection of where we are. And, you know, Schengen was always uh, something that was uh, anathematic to uh, British governments. Um, so it does really make a, a, a difference to the way that things work. And it's hard to see what any government in the UK could do short of signing up for Schengen, uh, which doesn't really look like a realistic uh, process, given where we are on the debate about uh, migration, both legal and illegal. You've mentioned uh, a new government uh, potentially coming um, at the time of recording. We just had uh, Rishi Sunak yesterday doing a press conference saying his working assumption is that the general election will be in the second half of 2024, which is an odd way of phrasing it when you're literally the only person who can make the decision. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, as we've, I think, been working to as well, it's looking like something like October, November is the kind of time when we are due to get a general election here in the UK. Remember, it has to happen by uh, basically this time next year, so in 2025, uh, but assuming that they don't want to go very end of that process and ideally uh, not overlap with the US uh, election, um, we're looking at sort of uh, late October time, maybe uh, November, depending on what we want to do. But given that we're still in a situation where uh, Labour is far ahead in the polls, um, I think, you know, it's useful to think a little bit about how Labour is uh, treating the European issue in the general election. Certainly uh, the impression uh that's been given by both Labour and Conservatives is that they don't particularly want to talk that much about the EU or about Brexit. Um, and, uh, you know, it might well be that this is a relatively quiet issue, but we've got one or two things that uh, we can point to. Um, David, do you want to kind of walk us through those? Indeed. So uh, last April, and indeed, in September as well, we both had the Shadow Chancellor, uh, Rachel Reeves, and also the Shadow Trade Secretary, Nick Thomas-Simmons, talking about seeking an agreement with the European Union on agricultural standards, so SPS. And the idea here, at least our Labour's argument, is that because there has been no agreement on SPS, says on SPS, that we've ended up in a situation whereby we have higher food inflation within the UK. And that's because without an agreement on SPS, so basically on agricultural standards, veterinary standards, and basically veterinary agreement, uh, the costs, therefore, for importing food into the UK, and indeed, if we go back to our conversation in relation to fisheries, uh, the movement of, say, fishery produce from the UK into the European Union faces, of course, uh, tariff barriers. So in that case, then, uh, we have ended up in a situation whereby, at least from Labour's argument, that this agreement very, may very well help to reduce, of course, the costs in terms of costs, or in terms of checks, I should say, excuse me, uh, on goods, food, agricultural goods at ports, which then, of course, has been uh, carried on by the producers, etc., 
and picked up therefore by the customer. So this is the idea that labor is seeking to focus on this idea of addressing this problem of not having an SPS agreement. And outside of that too, indeed, uh, Thomas Simmons also talked about this idea of improving not just an area of having stronger agricultural standards or improving greater cooperation in that area, but also more generally in the areas of crime and security and allowing for the idea of allowing tourists or artists uh, to travel between the UK and the European Union as well, which has been a big issue for artists, their difficulties in trying to get visas uh, into the European Union and vice versa as well. So trying to encourage people to travel or try to improve that relationship between uh, the UK and the EU in the area of uh, for, for artists specifically. And then more broadly, then we've had uh, the Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy uh, and a number of times, um, but notably, of course, at a NATO summit there, the most NATO, most recent NATO summit in December, where he talked about generally greater cooperation uh, between the European Union and a, the UK. So some sort of defence and security pact, very much a focus on Berlin and Paris, maybe indeed a pivot away from Washington, uh, up to a point, of course, because Washington and London have a very strong relationship, as we know, but on security and intelligence affairs. But we can see some degree of pivot, at least on defence, towards a stronger EU-UK relationship and also trying to address Though, according to officials in the Commission, it would be very difficult to achieve due to the negotiations, technical negotiations that will be required, that will be very lengthy. And this is in relation to trying to achieve an agreement on SBS uh, standards. So probably there will be, for the, in terms of achievements, though we never know, of course, in terms of an outcome, probably some degree of an outcome on defence and security. This is something that also um, David Lamy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, has also talked about. So there's some idea that Labour is convalescing around this idea of improving relations in the area of defence, and more broadly, that will help to improve the relationship between the EU and the UK. And then let us see how far a Labour government will be able to go on this SPS standards. But we need to be clear too that, at least from the EU side, which sometimes is forgotten in these discussions and debates, uh, the EU side, of course, <laughs> has a, a stake in this. And from their perspective, it's going to be quite difficult negotiation. So how much the Labour Party will be able to achieve in government on SPSS, we don't know, but we expect it to be quite difficult. And indeed, on defence, perhaps it will be a lot easier too. And of course, if they seek to improve relations between the UK and the EU, and specifically on the area of travel for tourists or for artists, that can also be uh, an area where there will probably be uh, some movement on the EU side, as the EU would probably be very much welcome to that idea of reducing barriers between uh, people traveling between the UK and the EU, specifically artists. Yeah, I think, you know, that is a really important point about the EU side in all of this. As much as we, you know, we, we talk about how Labour might want to shift the dial, uh, it's not just for them to to do that by themselves. The EU has to agree uh, or has to be willing to kind of uh, even discuss the issue. Um, and I think that, yeah, it's, it's not clear at this point that Labour is actually going to be any more realistic about what it can do than uh, the Conservative government has been uh, either pre or post uh, Windsor. So, 
here i think you know we've kind of got a bit of uncertainty you know certainly the the mood music is going to be uh more positive but quite what that leads to in substantive terms is unclear and you know labor's definition of what the relationship should be remains a bit under precise as much as you talked rightly about these kind of specific kinds of uh, points you know what that means in the round i think remains um less well discussed and articulated and even someone like david lammy has really not uh got into uh something that is actually a kind of a, a a deeply considered uh, kind of position, uh, except in the, the broadest kind of terms. I think the question will be is what happens during the long campaign through to the general election, whenever that might be, how much does each side choose to make the other one talk about Brexit? Because that's likely, given that they neither has a natural proclivity to, to want to talk about it, that much uh is it in their interest to try and goad the other one by talking about successes uh or more, per more pertinently failures uh real or imagined the spoiler in this i guess is uh reform um and whether they uh make more of a running particularly if nigel farage takes up a more prominent kind of position and you know at this point it's unclear whether he's coming or going or doing something else but uh, if he does come back to the party into more active campaigning, that might well complicate matters. Although, given his focus on uh, immigration and illegal immigration, uh, how that sits with Brexit or the EU more generally, I think is a bit uh, uncertain. Um, and, you know, we also have to remember that we've got the Rwanda deal that is going to be trading through uh, Parliament and most likely the courts during this year um, and if that does succeed or if there's a hardening of the bill to have more specific uh, uh, exclusions of the European Convention on Human Rights that will also generate issues um, and I, you know I guess you know there are those kind of uh, issues that are, are floating around you know just to take a, a rather different example uh, the government in Dublin has launched a, a case against the UK around uh, the uh, legislation that came in uh, late last year around uh, persecutions uh, for uh, crimes or for killings that took place during the Troubles um, and the amnesties that uh, there are there. So, you know, there's any number of points that could flash up into a more general impact on relations. Um, so, you know, I think we have got uh, a, a bit here still to go. Um, but the EU as EU is not currently likely to be a major part of the campaigning for anybody. Um, and again, it's the, the brutalisation of uh, the last uh, decade that everyone's talked so much about Europe that nobody wants to talk about Europe, except us, apparently. David, uh, I think that's probably enough stuff for uh, a grey January uh, day. Anything else that you want to kind of throw in, just kind of the general picture, you know, broader thoughts? I think that, as you correctly pointed, at least for the general election, the European Union will play a rather smaller role. I don't think the Labour Party wishes to antagonise 
any Brexit voters, and I suppose the Conservatives don't really want to reflect on arguably a, not a perhaps a decade, but uh, eight, seven years of perhaps failure with regards to the European Union in terms of policy. Yes, the WA withdrawal agreement, the TCA trade and cooperation agreement were approved, but uh, as we've seen, there have been many hurdles since, and there are many hurdles that remain that need to be dealt with. And they are sufficient problems, at least say on SPSS or SPS standards, agricultural standards, which are very much uh, going to be difficult and technical issues too. But we've also seen, I think, the relationship evolve as well. Windsor being a very good example of that. The car, electric car batteries issue. I know I like to go back to that, but it's proven to be a, a, an interesting case study in terms of how the UK and the EU can work together on an area or on an issue that is of mutual interest to them, even though the UK, of course, is outside, not just of the European Union, but had already been outside of the common security and defence policy, there has been at least some shared policy approach in terms of how to deal with the invasion of the Ukraine by Russia in terms of, say, sanctions and also in terms of supporting the Ukrainian armed forces as well. So the relationship certainly, and of course, let's not forget Horizon as well. So there are a lot of small but very important agreements that have been made in 2023. And also, we should also expect those type of agreements to continue uh, into 2024 and a continued perhaps, maybe I'm an optimist for January, but also a continued improved relationship between the UK and the EU. I think perhaps the dark days between the UK and the EU, that bitter relationship, relationship that very much descended into very poor state of affairs between Brussels and London. I think there has been a turn here. Uh, and indeed, if we can reflect a bit on our uh, on the conference both you and I attended, which looked back on the Sunak era, uh, how the relationship has changed between London and Brussels since uh, Prime Minister Sunak has taken office compared to his two predecessors and the likely, though we, uh, <laughs> I say likely in a in a way that is uh, probably hostage to fortune, but the likely election of a Labour Party as the next, and Keir Starmer as the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom should continue the work of Sunak in generally improving the relationship between the UK and the EU. So I think if I'm to be an optimist that we have the, the corner has been turned, the relationship is on a much more even keel. It's there are improvements, there are important agreements that are taking place that have been made between the UK and the EU. And I think this is a, a good point where it goes, where the UK relationship will end up. Who knows? That's for many podcasts to come, but I'm an optimist. We'll start off 2024 as in an optimistic note by saying the relationship is improved and is improving. Look at that. He's even got a smile on his face, which he can't see. Um, yeah, I think, you know, we, should, we shouldn't forget, you know, in a strategic sense, you know, in the broadest terms, the world is looking like a less friendly place and a less conducive place for uh the UK and the EU is not the worst uh, group of states to be uh, friendly with. You know that there is not a lot of overlap of interests and of uh, values and preferences. Uh, so you know that does suggest that there is ultimately 
reason to be doing more together and you do see that in in the way that you talk about of course we know that that was true uh seven years ago or six years ago eight years ago now since 2024 uh when we had the referendum and yet uh here we are so uh yeah just because things make sense in abstract terms doesn't necessarily mean they uh, happen in the real world and uh pick your example so uh David's happy and optimistic. I'm me. Uh, and what can you do? Uh, but thank you very much for listening to our first podcast of 2024. And we will come back with more episodes through the year and talk you through it all. So goodbye from me and. Goodbye from me. And of course, a happy new year to all our listeners as well. Yeah, what he said. Thank you. <laughs>